We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Critter Shed. We have some great stories lined up for you today. Stories I guarantee you won't want to miss. First though, a quick announcement from the Warren.ie podcast network. Now, as you may know by now, the Warren.ie is a collection of some of the finest podcasts in Ireland. And we are now delighted to welcome a new podcast into our little borough. The podcast in question is called The Has Beans Show. That's H-A-Z-B-E-A-N-Z show. And we love it for a few different reasons. First of all, it's mobile. The host is an Irish traveller who's a comedian and writer. And each episode is recorded in his father's camper van. He invites interviewees and listeners inside for a cup of tea and a friendly chat. It really is a great listen and we think you'll enjoy it. The link is in our show notes so you can hop along anytime you have a quick minute and have a listen. In the meantime, on with the Critter Shed. This week, Kali is on a solo run. So I'm going to make sure that's testing. Right. Ready to rock and roll. He's chatting to one of his many extraordinary scientist friends at Trinity College Dublin. Um, first of all, your name and, and what you're studying. Cheers, kia ora, colleague. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Catherine Murphy. I'm a third year PhD student in the classics department here at Trinity College. And I hail from the land of the hobbits, Aotearoa, New Zealand. I, I don't suppose you've seen a wizard lurking around these parts? Can't say I have. And I'm currently researching human-animal interactions in Roman spectacles, so the gladiator contests, and working under the supervision of Dr. Hazel Dodge, and I'm looking at animals from the perspective of their behaviour, which is something that really hasn't been done before. The Roman games has always been looked at from a human perspective, so I'm trying to give animals a voice in the arena narrative. That is amazing, and it's something you never really think about I suppose the slaves and the people who are running the games and the historical side of that but the effect it must have had on the amount of animals that went in there it's it's incredible to think about. It is it really is incredible I mean we do have to be so careful with the evidence when we're reading it they give us these large numbers these very rounded numbers that we look at and you think gosh did they really exploit that many animals I think Augustus he is said to have exploited around 3,500 animals in his games across 26 uh, spectacles. Then Titus, for the inauguration of the Colosseum, he exploited around 9,000 animals. And then later on in the second century, you've got Trajan who exploited 11,000 animals. You have to be so tricky with these figures. Like, did they really use that many animals? 
but uh, yeah, significant, significant numbers. So explain to me what a spectacle is and what it involves when it comes to animals. The Roman spectacles, they're actually, they're not particularly unique. Uh, the exploitation of animals in public displays is a real transcultural and transhistorical phenomenon that predates the Roman games. So the ancient Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Hellenistic kings had been using animals in public spectacles for many, many years. They'd hunt them, collect them, bring them back into the cities, and they'd exhibit them in public processions. And they really acted as tangible expressions of their wealth and their power and the geographic extent of their power. And in Rome, animals made their way into the public sphere in very much a similar manner. Through military conquests, the Romans would uh, encounter foreign animals that bring them back into the city, and they would parade them in victory triumphs as spoils of war. And then from there, they were sometimes brought into private collections, what we might think of as menageries, or sometimes they were brought into public entertainment venues like the theatre, the circus, the amphitheater, even the public forums. And here they were hunted and their death really symbolized Roman superiority over those conquered lands. But particularly in terms of the emperor's identity, it represented his own domination over the natural world. So, you know, civilized, uh, world conquering, okay. you know, uncivilized, untamed nature. So it was an expression of power, of wealth, of geographic connections, relations, trade relations. So it, it was very, very complex. I'd like to kind of override this Hollywood theory that they were these bloody spectacles that the Romans just wanted to see bloodshed. They absolutely weren't. They were fascinated in exotic animals, what they could do, what they represented. It really resonates with the 17th century colonial conquest of the British Empire. How they would bring back, you know, ta taxiderms and live animals and put them in public and private menageries. And people would go to these places just to marvel at the wonders of these animals that never seen them before. You know, they'd hear about them in tales and mythologies. The Roman army would come across them, but a lot of urban population, they'd never seen these animals before. So it was, it, it represented so many different things, but it was really a, a marvel, you know, to see these creatures. And would they have had anything that we could equate to zoos or was there any husbandry was there any care taken of the animals or was it just kind of get them in and then use them and then <laughs> and move on to the next one well yeah husbandry is it's an interesting one it's very tricky i know i have to be so careful myself who i you know i'm very uh, strong believer in animal rights and animal welfare and you really have to distance yourself when you, when I'm putting on my historian hat you can't impose these modern sensibilities and this way of thinking onto the past but certainly a lot of the animals exotic animals in particular they were um, you know transferred to Rome through connections with the wealthy elite and they were kept in private enclosures that the source is called a vivaria, which is like, um, yeah, I guess it's like an enclosure. And they were on private estates. So sometimes they would go straight there. And these private estates were like private hunting grounds for the elite. And sometimes they would entertain their peers and other officials that bring them onto the estate and they'd watch them hunt these animals. So they definitely had these private 
menageries, I guess, which had been, you know, around for, for centuries and centuries before them. The Egyptians were doing that. But then other times, you know, they were brought into Rome through their massive port at Ostia. They were kept in these holding pens and then they would be brought into the amphitheater and the Colosseum in particular, it's subterranean structures called a hypogeum and that's where they would keep the animals. But not all animals were killed in the arena. We, we have to remember that it wasn't all about killing animals. A lot of them, particularly over time, when there was definitely a shortage of certain animals, they were put into the arena. They were provoked, they were taunted in very theatrical ways. And then they were taken out. And they were probably brought back to these private, you know, holding pens, Vivaria, and then brought back into the arena for another day put to perform in some way or another, wow. to perform in a hunt and execution or whatever. So um, a lot of a lot of travel. You can imagine these poor animals were malnourished, exhausted, traumatized, but it wasn't a basic step-by-step. -step. You go from Africa, you get to Rome, you're in the arena. There was a big process involved. And probably a lot of people involved in that too. That's amazing to think that they reused animals over and over again. The stress on them. What kind of animals are we talking about here? Oh my goodness, everything. Everything. Wild, domestic, exotic, local, terrestrial, semi-aquatic, you name it. If they could get their hands on them, they exhibited them. Obviously in the earlier games, they probably exhibited more local wildlife so bulls wild boar were really really popular in italy in particular foxes sheep goats and then through military conquests as they came across more territories as the roman empire expanded they obviously brought back a wider range of species and there's actually a really fascinating debate that's been going on since the uh, late 19th century by a zoologist called George Jenison, who actually wrote about the Roman games. And we've got this one poem called Eclogue 7, and it dates to around the first century of the Roman Empire, which is what we think at the moment around Nero's time. And he talks about, in this one poem, there was a spectacle with, there was hippopotami, bulls, lions, leopards. And interestingly, he talks about there were bears chasing seals. And this historian has interpreted this bear or these groups of bears to be polar bears, wow. which is crazy to think. So uh, we also have another interesting epigram from a epigrammist called Marshall, who was writing in the uh, early empire. And he would write about these uh, spectacles that were held in the Colosseum for the celebration of its opening. And he talks about one famous bestiari, who was a beast fighter, who killed a bear who was once the king of the beasts under the Arctic sky. And gosh, what does Arctic sky mean? And Pausanias, a Greek geographer, he actually wrote about seeing on one of these private estates that I was just mentioning, um, a big white bear. Now, these references to these white bears from the Arctic regions of the world a lot of scholars think, gosh, this could be polar bears, but really the northern extent of the Roman Empire was, if you think about it, on the west side was Hadrian's Wall in Scotland. They didn't mm. really go beyond that. That's not to say that the Romans didn't have trade relations 
with groups up in the northern areas where you would find polar bears. But to think that they'd bring polar bears back, uh, you know, is just insane. So I'm not too sure if I really believe that, if, you know, I'd interpret that differently, because I know that I think in Syria they had bears that they described were very light colored, almost like a straw color. So it could just be these lighter colored bears that they're referring to. And if you think about it, if these animals are malnourished, they're going to be hungry. I think any animal, any kind of carnivore is going to be tempted to demolish a seal if it sees one in the amphitheater. <laughs> yeah, a big blubbery seal struggling <laughs> exactly. on land and you, you haven't eaten in a long time. Mm. That's mad. But even the thought that they could possibly have done that. Exactly. Well, you think they, they also brought over tigers. Yeah. And, and tigers were so far. They were so far away from Rome. They were probably bringing over the, the Caspian species of tiger around the Caspian Sea. But even then, the, the travel involved to get these tigers over is, is just uh, immense. So the fact they even had those animals is incredible. So to think that they may have had polar bears, I'm still not too sure about that. But every animal you can think of, you know, they would exploit it. It's crazy to think about. Surely if they were using a lot of animals within the range of the empire or places they've conquered, would that have made a dent in animal populations there? Would it have been local extinctions? Would it, if they've used up all the, either the, the scary predators or the prey animals for these games to, to bring them in? Because obviously you're not going to be eating tigers and wolves. Mm. What, what kind of effect did that have, if any, on, on local populations? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question that a lot of scholars in the recent years have been trying to measure, particularly with the pervasive trend of environmental degradation in our own time. And certainly the Roman games sort of contributed, at least, you know, maybe accelerated the depletion of local populations. We get references in the literary sources of animal populations going down in certain areas. There's a it's quite a comical correspondence between a governor, uh, Cicero, when he was governing uh, Cilicia in, in Turkey, and um, Rufus, another politician. And Rufus wrote to Cicero saying, hey, look, I know you have leopards where you are. Do you mind providing some for my own games. This is how the elites really procured animals was through these relations, these connections. Cicero doesn't respond for a little while. Uh, Rufus keeps on pestering him. So about these leopards, I've been writing to you. Where are they? And eventually Cicero responds and he says, look, we've got a shortage of leopards at the moment. They've been hunted and they're not particularly happy about being hunted. So he anthropomorphizes the leopards. And they've decided to jump ship and they've moved to a neighboring province. So I'm sorry, I don't think I can provide them. So it's really quite funny, uh, just the tone of, of this correspondence letter. But in all seriousness, that does show that there was a shortage of supply in leopards from this area where they were once abundant. They were probably used for the games. But in saying that, you also have to think about what other activities would have really affected local populations. And the time when we really start to see these references to species populations going down is in the later empire. It's in the third century AD onwards. 
And if we think about the kind of activity that was going on during that time, particularly in North Africa, Northwestern Africa, is large-scale agricultural production, right? You've got these emperors who are starting to enforce legislation that allows for uncultivated land to be worked and to be used and turned into olive production plants and uh, for wheat growing, you know, because North Africa was really a breadbasket of the Roman Empire, just like Egypt. And these plantations, they took over species habitats. You've got conflict between farmers and these wild populations. And what is really testimony of this is if you look in North Africa, you've got these incredibly large, gorgeous Roman villas, and they've got amazing floor mosaics. And the illustrations in these floor mosaics show the farmers in contact, direct contact with lions, leopards, and elephants. And in the background, you've got domestic wildlife and, uh, sorry, wild stock, and you've got um, olive plantations. So agricultural production, habitat destruction, I reckon would have been the primary cause of species depletion. And then of course, with agricultural production, you've got the expansion of cities. So by the third century AD, Tunisia, which is a city in North Africa, which was a huge provider of animals for the Roman spectacles, it had over 200 cities there. And the cities, they had amphitheaters, circuses, forums, aqueducts, these huge building projects was in the territory of these wild populations. So those animals that would have been coming into confrontation with these farmers and these building projects, they would have been round up and used in the amphitheaters throughout Africa. So certainly the Roman spectacles would have contributed to these local population decline. But just like nowadays, what is the biggest destroyer? Habitat destruction. You know, that's how we're seeing animals nowadays go down. That is incredible. So even though it would be much more glamorous and exotic to say that the the, the collection of animals for the, for the spectacles or for the games would have been the main cause, it's just the mundane stuff that we're still putting up with today. We haven't learned a thing as a species and we're no. still pushing them out. That, that's incredible. It really is. And it, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's such a simple thing. If you don't provide the habitat for the animals, if you're going to take over and and, and put large farms in where it used to be wilderness, there's going to be no place for them to go and direct conflict with humans and animals. Absolutely. I mean, one of the main messages I want to get across, at least in, in my PhD research at the moment, is that traces of the Colosseum are all around us. We, we have learnt a lot. We are looking after wildlife in, in a very different manner. But the trend, the, the way that we're exploiting animals, it has exhilarated definitely. And if you think about the kind of activity that was happening in the 19th and 20th century, it really surpasses what the Romans were doing. You know, it's, it's hard to hear. And as much as Hollywood would like to think, oh, these big bloody spectacles and gladiators and all that jazz. But no, I'm sorry. It's, you know. Yeah, we've left them in the in the halfpenny places we say in Dublin. We've left them well in our shadow and in, in, in what we've achieved. 
We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, so how were large animals transported? It's a really interesting thing to me in my head. I know now we've established that. Obviously, it wasn't in the massive numbers that we probably would have assumed from, from Hollywood and stuff. But there was a significant amount brought to arenas and, and, and to and from these enclosures that they set up. How would they have moved them? Like, I mean, you look at the cages that you have to move, lions, tigers, mm. giraffes, elephants in nowadays, and there are some serious pieces of kit, like it's like Jurassic Park kind of stuff. <laughs> so how were the Romans doing this? What were they putting them in? Oh my gosh, yeah. So the sources really talk about, especially for land travel, um, you know, wooden wooden cages. Uh, it's really quite interesting. There's a Roman historian called Claudian, and he writes about how, you know, the sailors would fear the merchandise that they carried. Because, you know, right. not like us nowadays, you, you can temporarily put these animals to sleep for an easy passage, you know, for them to get from, from A to B. These animals weren't put to sleep very much alive, very much awake, very much aware they're going. And he also describes how the oxen, these prey species, were terrified of what they were carrying in these big wooden carriages behind them. You could have lions and bears and everything growling. And even just the logistics of trying to get these beasts of burden to push and to transport these animals. So I imagine land transport would have been crazy difficult. And you also got to think about what kind of supplies you need to have on the way. You need to have milk or water. You need to have, you know, prey species for the carnivora in particular for them to feed on. We know that according to Pliny, who was a natural uh, historian in the early Principate, Pliny the Elder, he talks about if the Romans were to have used really fast ships, you could get from the ports in North Africa to Ostia, just south of Rome, in two days. But there's no navigable rivers around North Africa. So the first journey would have been land transportation, um, which would have been really, really tough, really, really laborious. And these big, must have been sturdy wooden cages. <laughs> and then they would have then gone on a sea voyage. 
So multiple modes of transport. And then once they got to the port of Ostia, they would have then been transferred to the River Tiber, where they would have then gone into Rome. And Pliny also talks about how you also got to think about escapees. And he talks about one incident of how um, at the docks, I think it is in Ostia, how an artist, a painter, went down to the docks and was painting a leopard. And the leopard got out and, and this particular painter was, was seriously mauled. So, you know, just like you hear about nowadays and even more so, you know, back in the 19th and 20th century, there were certainly escapees. <laughs> so it would have just been crazy. But the Roman army was also involved in the procurement of animals. We have a lot of inscriptions from Germany in the 3rd century AD of these specialist bear hunters, they're called Yusuri, and they were given like a quota of animals to hunt and capture and, and bring to Rome uh, per year. And there's one inscription uh, in Germany of where this uh, bear hunter boasts about how he uh, was able to capture 50 bears in the space of six months, and he's very proud of this, so he clearly exceeded his quota. But the army was very involved in it, so they would have also had these private holding pens out in the frontiers, you know, around the, the extent of their Roman Empire. They would have been kept there and then brought back to Rome, so they weren't immediately transported, you know. So a range of different modes of transport, a range of different personnel involved. They would have used the natives as well, because they obviously would have known the most about the land, about the behavior of the animals. And sometimes those natives were also brought back to Rome with the animals. So we know that Augustus, he staged a spectacle with crocodiles and he actually brought back specialist crocodile hunters who knew those how those crocodiles behaved. They knew how they worked in their natural wildlife and they came with them. They were transported with them back to Rome and they were put on display in a makeshift reservoir and then they were hunted there. So these natives would have played probably a very important role in helping procure these animals to transport them, to look after them, you know, in that process, and then eventually hunt them or exhibit them if they weren't to be killed. That is crazy. Imagine being the bus driver carrying that. <laughs> it reminds me of that image of the guy with the coronavirus in England driving oh the bus, all the gosh. poor people getting out. The you must have been terrified. And, like, and, and when you think about how how aggressive like especially big cats and 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 bears would be reaching through bars clawing at people that's insane to think and they were fully awake the whole time they must have been going nuts which is you know as as horrible it is for the poor people who are dealing with it probably slaves or whatever but it is also dreadful to think of the stress that the poor animals went through mm. crazy and really all is kind of like you know put put together if you think if you want these animals to get back to their destination where they're going if you want them to be alive you can't be putting in 50 lions all together in one wagon you've got to have them separate to some extent and there's one um politician called Symmachus in, in the later empire in the fourth century and he has provided us with a lot of letters when he was producing spectacles for his son for his praetorship and he's really frustrated because on one occasion, all of his animals were lost in a shipwreck. And another time, uh, a group of bears turned up malnourished. Other times, the animals turned up completely dead. And so these were real anxieties and worries of these elites and of the emperor who was staging these spectacles. Would these animals even turn up alive? That was a real concern. 
and and it reflects badly on them and the show they're trying to put on. Absolutely, because they would have advertised it beforehand. Uh, new public advertising, often we get the programs of the spectacles that says what kind of species they're going to be displaying, how many species. So fere was the name of uh, wild beasts. So that would usually include, you know, bears or lions or leopard. And it might say, you know, upcoming spectacle would be showing you know, this amount of fere and this amount of herbivores or whatever. So the public had an expectation to an extent what they were going to see. And if they didn't produce that, you know, that's your reputation on the line. That is crazy. My God, such a, a strange and weird culture. Although I suppose when you think about it, we're going to look back, maybe our grand, great, great grandchildren will look back at horse racing or greyhound racing, certainly a bullfighting and probably think, you know, how barbaric were we? So I suppose yeah. it's, it's, it's all, um, it's all relevant. Mm. The, the last question I want to ask you, right, in your opinion, what would you consider the biggest show that was put on with animals? What was the craziest show? Crazy. And I'm not trying to say that you're, <laughs> we, we are not justifying any of this no, carry on or behavior, but putting my historian hat on. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, ah, uh, crazy in terms of extravagant. I know that there was there was one spectacle held in the second century by an emperor called Septimius Severus, and he put on a venatio. So this is what the displays are called, venationes, they're a staged hunt. He put them on in celebration of his 10th year reigning. And our sources tell us that he constructed a ship and inside that ship were 400 wild and domestic beasts and the spectacle was meant to uh, evoke a shipwreck so all of a sudden the ship would have collapsed and 400 animals would have come rushing out oh and then they were hunted just imagine the chaos imagine the sounds the smell just it would have just been absolutely insane. But even the, the again, putting my historian hat on, the logistics of getting all of these animals inside the ship. Now, this particular spectacle wasn't what we call a namakia, which is a naval battle, because they did certainly flood some of the arenas. It wasn't one of those games. There's no reference to there being water, but there would have been ways for them to kind of make it seem like like a big shipwreck and just would have collapsed and just seen them all running around wild i reckon that would have been pretty spectacular to see and would they have had different species obviously they would have had different types of animals there and absolutely i i think the, the source in particular mentions there being um lions leopards bears ostriches ostriches were very very popular because easily easily attainable domestic bulls you know, you've got you've got domestic animals. They they use local domestic populations as well as the wild beasts. So putting all of those animals together, you know, that you don't know if, gosh, would they turn on each other? Would they turn on the hunters? Everyone would have been running around like headless chickens. There's another thing. Just just it just popped into my head. Obviously, if you have lions, tigers, crocodiles, and and you want them to perform a certain task or to do something in the arena uh, specific like eat somebody or attack people was there a case sometimes where the animals didn't perform as planned or how did they go about that absolutely i mean animals are not machines they're 
behavior is unpredictable, particularly if they're malnourished. You can't guarantee they would have even had the energy to attack someone. So at the moment, I've really been working on trying to see what kind of strategies did the Romans employ to stimulate aggressive behavior. And it's really useful to think about how they stimulated their sensory modalities. So they used tactile stimulation. They used tools like whips and goads to push and prod the animals to elicit aggressive behavior. They used visual stimuli. So they would have used fire to even just to scare them into certain areas. So if they were moving into one area of the amphitheater or the circus and they wanted to push them back into the center or push them towards the beast fighters, the bestiari, they could just wave fire around because we know that's a strategy that the hunters used when they were actually capturing these animals. Other stimuli, they used auditory stimuli. So musicians were a big part of these spectacles. And there's executions where, you know, the, the executioner may be forced to play a musical instrument to kind of elicit that reaction. But then they also used olfactory stimuli. And <laughs> there's a really fascinating execution with a victim and a bull. Do you know the story of Pasiphae and the bull Collie. No, you know I'm, I, I'm probably going to get traumatized now, but this sounds like a really, <laughs> you might be this is brilliant. This is right up my alley. Go okay, ahead. Okay, warning to all listeners. So one of the displays involving animals was called Dimatio ad Bestios, and that was execution, condemnation by the beast. So the beast would act as the executioner, and the victim would be forced to fight that animal or they'd be restrained in some way or another. The Romans, being theatrical as they are, they like to reenact mythologies in these executions. And the story of Pasiphae and the bull is that Poseidon burdened Pasiphae with a lust towards a big white bull. Pasiphae was the queen of Crete. Poseidon sent a big bull to the island of Crete to give to Minos for them to sacrifice to Poseidon. And Minos did not sacrifice the bull. So as punishment, he made Pasiphae fall in love with this bull. In order to mate with this bull, she went to a craftsman called Daedalus and he built a wooden cow for her to hide in in order for this bull to mate with her. Now, how on earth do you think the Romans would have reenacted that? I, I, I don't want to know. <laughs> no, I do. I do want to know. That is, yeah, I think we're getting into really good territory here. <laughs> Janie, Mac, go ahead. Yeah, tell me. So... There has been one theory put forward by a modern Roman historian called Dr. Kathleen Coleman, who has worked heavily on these mythological executions, which she has called fatal charades. And she's theorized that the Romans would have smeared estrus urine on the victim who would have been dressed as Pasiphae. Because it's a very popular myth. The Romans, the Greeks, or the whole audience would have been very familiar with this type of myth. And her theory is that, yes, Pasiphae would have been, uh, she would have had this uh, fluid smeared on her. And this kind of technique is used in modern livestock management. It's a technique called biostimulation. 
And it's been proven that dummy cows, so you don't even need a live cow, you don't even need fresh fluid. If it's estrus urine, it will stimulate reproductive behavior like flemming behavior or mounting to produce, you know, that kind of reproduction. So in order to stimulate that behavior, because the Romans were all about trying to make the impossible possible, it's highly likely that they would have taken estrus urine, they would have smeared it all over her, because certainly penetration from this bull, which was a live bull, would have killed her, if not even just the trampling of the bull. And this particular, if anyone's interested in researching it, that particular spectacle is spectacle number six, recorded by Marshall for the opening of the Colosseum Games in his Liber Spectacularum. If anyone wants to look it up, that's where it is. That is insane and <laughs> so grim. It's Absolutely. so, so grim. But it does make sense because you've seen the videos of horses and bulls mounting these, these artificial insemination kind of collection devices. Yeah. But that is insane. So I really, you know, manipulated the animal senses in various different ways to encourage not just aggression, you know, but to encourage reproductive behavior. They really, really had many strategies to just manipulate all those behaviors. It's crazy. It's fascinating. It really is a fascinating subject to be studying and really left the field. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you giving us a little bit of insight into it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, it's just an incredibly diverse and complex topic. And I know modern historians who work on gladiators, they, they will tell you the same thing. You know, don't look towards Hollywood if you're wanting to, you know, know more about the Roman spectacles, because of course, Hollywood loves to glorify that. So we want to kind of stamp out these these myths of these big, bloody, needless butchering games is so more complex than that. You know, they had a deep fascination for these animals, you know, a deep interest in what they could do. And that interest, you know, it carries on through nowadays. We are fascinated how animals behave, how they respond to different stimuli. So it's really a transcultural phenomenon, really. Yeah, and, and I suppose... If we had any sense, we could look back and and maybe not make similar mistakes or maybe look at their example in the past. And, and like I said, maybe say, well, what are we going to look back on ourselves and say was barbaric and ridiculous behavior? So it, it's kind of a, you know, maybe looking back at, at these and the study yours, you're involved with and the, the lessons user shown the rest of us civilians mm. that uh, that what happened and what, what went down that maybe we could learn as a society so we won't be looked back as 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 crazy people doing crazy <laughs> stuff for animals uh, absolutely i mean i feel this is definitely my role as, as a historian we're, we're meant to take these stories from the past apply it to the present so we can you know particularly to do with species exploitation, environmental exploitation, you know, and, and learn from it. At the moment, we know better, but we are no better. And I'd really love to see us, you know, improve on that. And, you know, with current events with corona and, and the pandemic, you know, that is just a reflection on how we have exploited our land and what we can do to improve that wildlife trafficking was a huge part of that. Wildlife trafficking is a huge part of antiquity. We need to learn from the ancients and we need to evolve and we need to improve. 
Amen, sister. That was that was absolutely brilliant. I really appreciate you taking your time to uh, to fill us in on, on some of this fascinating uh, historical information. Thank you so much, Carly, for having me. It's been awesome to have this good chat. <laughs> anytime, anytime. I love that. That was brilliant. The Critter Shed is part of the Warren, the home of great Irish podcasts. As is my podcast, not without my sister. You can find more great shows on thewarren.ie. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.